Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Welcome, everyone, to our next episode of Season 2 of Fertility and Sterility on Air. We are on the February edition of Fertility and Sterility. And as always, I'm joined by Kurt, Eve, and Pietro. Welcome to all of you. Good to see you again. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for listening. Hi, Micah. Hi, Kurt. Hi, Pietro. Good afternoon. Welcome, everybody. Always good to be back with this team. Happy February. Good to be back with everyone. Sorry that I missed last month. And Pietro, we are starting with you on the views and reviews in the February edition of the journal. Thanks, Micah. This month's views and reviews focuses on the newly released sixth edition of the WHO Semen Processing Manual. FNS editorial editor Michael Eisenberg organized the views and reviews series to provide context from the expert panel who actually developed the manual. The first article is by Bjorndal et al., which discusses how the sixth edition of the WHO manual really emphasizes the importance of reducing inaccuracy and imprecision in measurements, allowing semen parameters to be compared across labs worldwide and hopefully facilitating research on men's health. Some interesting takeaways from this article. The two to seven days of ejaculatory abstinence is still the norm. The manual also underscores the need to initiate examination of the sample within 30 minutes after ejaculation, as sperm motility in the ejaculate decreases with time after ejaculation. And perhaps the most significant change in the sixth edition is regarding the reintroduction of the distinction of rapid progressive from slow progressive spermatozoa, which was previously omitted in the fifth edition compared to earlier editions. I didn't know this, but the way you define a rapidly progressive spermatozoa is one sperm moving greater than five head lengths per second. Fun fact. The second article is one by Baldi et al., which highlights another important difference between the fifth and sixth edition of the WHO manual, which is the inclusion in the latest edition of a chapter on extended semen evaluations, such as sperm DNA quality and fragmentation, as well as computer-aided sperm analysis systems. The listeners of this podcast are pretty familiar with sperm DNA fragmentation, and there's been several meta-analyses that have indicated a role for it, in particular with regard to increased rates of miscarriage, decreased pregnancy, and live birth rates in IVF programs. But whether assessment of this type of damage should be used widely in the diagnostics process is still pretty controversial. Baldi and his co-authors argue that we should separate sperm DNA fragmentation techniques based on the different properties of DNA being evaluated and the underlying scientific principles, meaning results are not always interchangeable when we lump in DNA fragmentation tests altogether. The final article is one by Dr. Dory Lamb, which rounds out the views and reviews with a discussion about the future of diagnosis and treatment of men with impaired sexual and reproductive health. She nicely outlines three points. One, Advance in omic technologies and sperm biology will hopefully provide several new advances and extended assays assessing the functional competence of the spermatozoa. The advent of genetic and genomic testing may partially replace routine semen analysis and provide more defined etiologies for three classes, teratozoospermia, asthenozoospermia, and spermatogenic failure. And finally, she argues that the promise of novel therapeutic developments 
in areas such as stem cell rejuvenation after spermatogenic failure due to toxic insults may finally be realized. This views and reviews, I think, was really outstanding for people who are looking to learn a little bit more about not only the WHO semen processing manual update, but also the current state of the art when it comes to how to evaluate, diagnose, and treat men with male factor infertility. I always struggle with the WHO criteria and that it's just, you know, a population percentile of fertile men. And so what do you do with these numbers when they're, when they're abnormal? It seemed nice if we could have diagnostic criteria that actually reflected treatment and, and disease as opposed to just percentiles of population distribution. But I think that's been bemoaned throughout the history of the, the semen analysis. HR, is there a simple way of saying, really, what's different about this? Is this just an incremental update, or are we really ready to make a big change in the way we analyze semen analyses? I think the sixth edition is an incremental change. There's nothing that's earth-shatteringly different from the fifth edition, but there really is a driving home the point that we need to be very precise about how we handle semen, how we prepare semen, and then ultimately how we analyze semen so that we can really use this information at scale to hopefully move the ball forward on assessing not only fertility potential of the infertile male, but also how these different semen parameter abnormalities may impact future cardiovascular health. This update obviously was a lot of work. I hope that it will be widely read and, and widely disseminated. I mean, when updates come out, they really should be implemented and used by all. Thank you for that summary, Pietro. So we're moving on to the fertile battle now. And this month's fertile battle is led by editorial editor Robert Norm. And it's the classic debate of should ICSI be utilized for non-male factor infertility? And in his introduction, he summarizes both sides of this debate, which I think should be fairly well known to most of our listeners. Uh, he notes that while ICSI has benefited millions of infertile patients, we should avoid excessive and indiscriminate use of a technology that adds costs and has potential biologic implications. The con argument arguing against ICSI for all is led in two different articles, the first by Anna Neves and Nicolas Polizos from Dexus University Hospital, Barcelona, Spain. The second is from Tong Ho and Lan Vong from Ho Chi Minh, Vietnam. The Spanish authors break down the argument into six ICSI myths, and they make the argument why ICSI is not needed for things such as low responders, advanced reproductive age, and now even PGT cases. And the authors present very reasonable evidence to back all of these up, and that would be consistent with uh, the ASRM practice guidelines. They then delve into more controversial areas, such as that ICSI should not be used for unexplained infertility, and even prior failed fertilization with conventional IVF, stating that instead maybe a more rigorous reevaluation should be done to see if there are correctable factors. And they also argue against uh, IVF ICSI split. They're pretty strong in their conclusion saying, let's avoid myths, abstain from virtual reality and accept the fact that ICSI is not made for all. So very clear. The Vietnamese authors have recently published a large randomized control topic on this. And in fact, they've done uh, several large randomized control studies and should be commended for that over the last five years. They present their trials and others, which do not show an advantage for live birth for an ICSI-all approach and non-male factor infertility. It should be noted that their study sort of lumps all non-male factor patients together. So it's not necessarily just unexplained infertility. 
They also explore the potential for epigenetic changes and developmental outcomes being aberrant with ICSI, although over data they present appears to be reassuring. But similar to the authors from Spain, they conclude ICSI should be reserved for male factor infertility. But in line with our discussion on WHO guidelines, sometimes what we define as male factor infertility can be uh, a little bit gray. The pro side is written by Jason Franasiak from Armenia, New Jersey, and John Jovich from Curtin University in Perth, Australia. So Jason explores the challenges of applying population-level statistics to an individual patient sitting in front of you who maybe wants to try everything or is willing to do anything to maximize the chance of that cycle. He also talks about patient dropout and the fact that if you have total fertilization failure and a patient drops out, that's not accounted for uh, in these randomized controlled trials. I think an important point he makes is that all the studies looking at ICSI and non-male factor report up to the first live birth or after the first transfer. They don't really look at cumulative live birth. And there is evidence that shows that ICSI for non-male factor, specifically unexplained infertility, can increase fertilization rate and the number of blastocysts, which should, in theory, increase cumulative live birth. So he concludes that maybe ICSI shouldn't be used for all, but maybe ICSI should be used for more for these reasons. Finally, John Jovich, who's a PhD in Australia, discusses uh, more of the biologic underpinnings of why we use ICSI. He talks about the data for unexplained infertility split sibling oocytes. And Kurt, I think this data was summarized by your prior fellow, Lauren Johnson, 11 RCTs, uh, all randomized sibling oocytes that showed a number needed to treat of five to avoid total fertilization failure in patients with unexplained infertility. I think that number might be overstated given that it's a split design. So your chance of total fertilization failure is going to be double if you only have half the oocytes in the IVF arm, but still was some pretty profound RCT data. And at the end of this uh, document is table one, which just summarizes the data for and against ICSI. And overall, if you just look numerically, yes, the preponderance doesn't show a benefit of ICSI, but there's plenty of studies that do show a benefit of ICSI, which I think is why you see such a split and why this is such a good topic to debate. So overall, this is a very nice classic debate on should we use ICSI for unexplained infertility uh, brought to us by a group of global experts. It's something that I still struggle with, especially the unexplained infertility patients. I personally recommend it and I talk to them about the evidence of increased total fertilization failure, but I tell them we don't have evidence that it will increase their live birth. Most of the patients then choose to proceed with ICSI in that setting, but some decline it. But I don't know. How do you guys approach this? It's a challenging topic. So, Micah, this debate's been going on for a long time. And there's um, kind of a well-known axiom in decision-making that smart people tend to find small details to support their opinion. So I have a feeling that we're not convincing anybody that they don't ever have preconceived ideas, pun intended. Um, I think people that support ICSI find evidence to support their decision, and people that don't are finding evidence to support their decision not to do it. I wish it was cut and dry because I it this shouldn't be such a debate. So I'm curious, Eve, how you handle this with your colleagues and more importantly, how you handle it with your patients. Yeah, I will say that I think that the fact that the debate rages on really means that the evidence are not are not clear. I will say I came from a program that did 100% XE um, the first nine years of my practice and then transitioned to a program that probably does about 60% XE overall. And I think we're much more selective about who we 
who we recommend ICSI for. And I think similar to Micah, when I have a patient who has unexplained infertility, I have the conversation. I talk about what the data shows and what the data doesn't show. And at the end of the day, I do find that patients want to not have any regret and not look back and say, gee, well, I maybe could have done ICSI. And so I think that it's really individualized and it's a difficult conversation, but I think ultimately I've backed off using ICSI for PGT. I've backed off using ICSI um, based on morphology alone and really selectively use ICSI much more now than I used to. But I'm, I'm just not certain that it makes a big difference either way. I find this whole conversation fascinating because normally in medicine, you're supposed to find evidence that something works in order to have it added on. But in our field, because of regret and maybe because we get paid for it, we have to find extraordinary evidence that it doesn't work for us to give it up. It really is an interesting debate. And I'm, I guess it'll just play out in practice. Yeah, that's such a great point, Kurt. And I usually like to think of myself as being on the wanting evidence side, but with the ICSI thing and unexplained infertility, I've made those phone calls to the total FERT patients. And you have a few of those in a row and they're so devastating and that whole cycle is lost. Sometimes that your anecdote ends up changing your practice, even though you don't have the evidence to, to necessarily back it up. I can't agree more with that. And it, it's like how many of those total fertilization failure calls do you make before you become a little bit more ICSI for all rather than ICSI for, for some? Yeah, I, I just wanted to end with, I, I'm not going to change anybody's mind, but again, there's another accent that we should pay attention to, which is that you're treating a small number of people with an anecdote. And if there really is a small incremental detrimental effect, we're harming a lot of people as a field. And maybe because we don't see that in our practice, that's why it's potentially not evident to us. Yeah, but I don't know how much the data are nuanced to say like this particular patient with unexplained infertility with XYZ. Um, I think you can look at it in large groups, but to Jason Frenesiak's point about the individual patient, there may be differentiating features about that individual that aren't captured um, or not generalizable to the larger data play. And so um, I don't know the right answer. I definitely in my own practice am using less and less ICSI as the years go on and paying attention to those data. But I think at the end of the day, it's really about trying to do the best for each patient that's in front of you. I love this discussion. It's a great topic. This is the debate that I make my first year fellows debate each other uh, early on each academic year because you, you can have an hour long discussion about all these points. So fantastic fertile battle this month from Robert Norman. And Eve, we're sticking with uh, the theme of sperm here and you have the seminal contribution for the month of February. Pun intended. Absolutely. Unintended pun. <laughs> This seminal contribution is titled Sperm Quality and Absence of SARS-CoV-2 RNA in Semen After COVID-19 Infection, a Prospective Observational Study and Validation of a Sperm COVID Test. This article was written by Gilbert Donders and others from Antwerp, Belgium. The primary objective of this study was to study whether viral RNA could be detected in semen after the acute phase of infection and then also beyond that time frame. So is 
COVID sexually transmitted, I think is really the major question. A secondary objective was to assess sperm parameters in those who tested positive by nasopharyngeal PCR for COVID-19 or who were symptomatic and had serum antibodies present. The study was done during the first and second wave, and so no participants were vaccinated. The study included males age 18 to 70, yes, 70, uh, were recruited to participate, and the time frame was one week to six months after a positive test or six months after symptoms. Those that agreed to participate were sent a questionnaire about the severity of their COVID-19 symptoms, and then blood and sperm samples were collected or semen samples were collected. The authors created a global symptom score and specifically assessed for the presence or absence of fever in these males. Those who had more severe disease had higher symptom scores. The time lapse between symptoms and sperm collection was also assessed. And overall, there were 120 men that were included in the study with a mean age of 34, but a range of 18 to 69. And here's what they found. So first, samples were analyzed at a mean of 54 days post-infection. And I think it's very reassuring that none of the 120 men had SARS-CoV-2 RNA detected in their semen sample. Here's what I think is most interesting, but we need to interpret this cautiously. Morphology was more affected than motility, which was more affected than concentration. So let me break that down a little bit. 67% of the males in the study had teratospermia, 44% had asthenospermia, and 25% of all men after COVID-19 infection were oligospermic. Fever and severity of COVID-19 symptoms were not associated with reduced sperm quality parameters. The data were then characterized by interval from infection to analysis. And what they saw was that the decrease in sperm quality parameters was greatest in men who tested soon after recovery from COVID-19. Parameters were less severely affected in men who tested after one month and least in men who tested after two months or more, suggesting that there may be a recovery phase of sperm after COVID-19 infection. They saw that sperm count less than 15 million per ml was six times more frequent in males tested within one month after infection than men who tested two months after infection. And they measured signs of DNA damage using a DNA fragmentation index. And they found that these were most pronounced within the first month after COVID-19 infection. Overall, the finding that there was no virus in the semen is reassuring but the correlation between COVID-19 infection and low morphology, motility, and counts is a little bit concerning. The authors have a really nice discussion that talks about the biologic plausibility of these data as it relates to SARS-CoV-2, the ACE2 receptor, and entry into the cell. I think there really is much more biologic plausibility for COVID-19 impacting male gametes as opposed to female. I wanna highlight a large flaw of this study. There is not a control group and we have no idea what the baseline semen analysis parameters were for this group of men. So these data really need to be interpreted with a lot of caution. But I think that they're a really good nugget when discussing vaccination and especially vaccine hesitancy that COVID and not the vaccine may actually be worse for sperm counts. Pietro, you look like you're burning a comment. 
So in light of this data, however many limitations it has based on its study design, would this change how you counsel your patients about delaying potentially an IUI cycle or a fresh specimen to be produced for IVF? No, I, I wouldn't make any clinical changes based on this. But as I see it, I think it's really more for those vaccine hesitant who are worried about the impact of vaccine on fertility. I think we can show data saying that it's actually the virus and not the vaccine that may be more impactful. I think the other nugget to help counsel these patients are that we're seeing data about endothelial dysfunction occurring in men who have been infected with uh, SARS-CoV-2 and the resulting erectile dysfunction associated with that, which if the changes in your semen parameters don't scare you, maybe the erectile dysfunction does. That's probably a better scare tactic. What I think was really interesting, though, is the finding that it's not the fever itself. So for a long time, I think we've all postulated that it's not COVID, but it's the underlying fever that may be causative for low counts. And I think this study did a really nice job of separating out those males that had fever and males that didn't have fever and showing that sperm dysfunction was seen irrespective of whether or not fever was present. More good data to suggest you should get the vaccine if you have not yet and to encourage your patients to do that. Kurt, we're staying andrology heavy and we're talking about a study that you have, uh, an analysis of the EARTH trial and semen parameters men. Thank you, Micah. I, I, I see a theme. The complicated epidemiologic studies uh, seem to be given to me. So I'm happy to discuss paternal adherence to healthy dietary patterns in relation to sperm parameters and outcomes of assisted reproductive technologies. The first author is Albert Salas Huetos and the senior author, Jorge Ciavaro, as well. So this is a nice secondary analysis from the study designed to see if adherence to dietary patterns, which are promoted for prevention of cardiovascular disease, are associated with the change in semen parameters that might end up with better outcomes for couples undergoing assisted reproductive technologies. So the premise is an interesting one. There is some data suggesting that while mouth factor is implicated in 20 to 30 percent of cases of infertility contributes to more, almost 40 to 50 percent of cases among couples diagnosed with infertility. And the theory is that this might be due to a decline in semen quality. And we've had battles about this in fertility and sterility even recently. So this team took the position that if that were true and sperm counts were decreasing in the industrialized world, that perhaps there may be modifiable factors such as diet that may ameliorate the burden of infertility as well as potentially increasing overall health outcomes. So the hypothesis was that dietary patterns generally considered to be healthy, documented with other general health outcomes, would be related to higher likelihood of ART success, perhaps mediated through better semen analysis parameters. So to accomplish this, as you mentioned, the investigators used the Environment and Reproductive Health Study. The acronym is EARTH. It's a prospective preconception cohort study of couples seeking fertility treatment at Mass General. And both men and women completed complex and detailed questionnaires on medical history, occupational history, lifestyle, um, as well as, as of 2007, diet. So there are about 460 couples that were able to be isolated with this good information. And they, pending um, some exclusion criteria, were able to analyze 245 of them who underwent IVF with or without ICSI. So they used very well-validated questionnaires that evaluated diet in eight priority diets that have been assessed in the literature with positive health patterns. 
One of them is called the Tricopolo Mediterranean Diet, an alternate Mediterranean diet. There's the Panagiotakos Mediterranean Diet, the Diet of Healthy Eating Index, the Alternative Healthy Eating Index Diet, the American Heart Association Diet, the DASH Diet, and the Plant-Based Diet. Now, I don't recognize many of these diets. Perhaps they have bad publicists or haven't gone viral or somehow haven't been on the internet. But um, it's interesting that these are well-qualified diets and you can read in the methods and the tables what they are and what are the advantage ours. So the outcomes are the recognizable outcomes we all know from ART studies, including fertilization, implantation rate, and most importantly, clinical pregnancy rate and live birth weight, and also indirectly the semen analysis at the time of the treatment. So the participants were pretty standard ART participants, uh, averaging around 36 years old, mostly white. Male factor was the most prevalent indication, and male factor was the most prevalent primary infertility diagnosis. Now, interestingly, there are some differences in the caloric intake and the BMI based on which partner took which diet, but mostly these differences were pretty small and were not large or dramatic. Looking a little closer at the outcome, there was one at least statistically significant finding, and that was an inverse association between adherence to two of the diets and lower fertilization rates. Let me say that again. So if you had a better adherence to two of these diets, you actually had lower fertilization rates. Now, it's hard to tell if this adherence or this reverse association is spurious or actually real, but perhaps leading to the theory that it's just statistical noise is the finding that there were no significant associations to any of the other dietary patterns with probability of implantation rate, clinical pregnancy rate, or live birth rate in unadjusted or multivariable analyses. So of note, the main finding of this paper is that there are no associations with dietary intake and clinical pregnancy rates in any of the patients, including a subset of patients that underwent IUIs. So looking into the potential pathway, they also found no particular association between semen analysis parameters and dietary intake as well. So what do we do with a negative study like this? First of all, it's not possible nor correct to conclude definitively that this rules out any association between dietary parameters and semen analysis as well as live births. Perhaps a bit peripheral to this particular study, the authors in the discussion say what's well, consistent with other randomized trials showing that there was no effect on reproductive outcomes in couples that were randomized to folic acid or zinc supplementation or a combination of other supplements, including vitamin C, vitamin E, et cetera. But as I just mentioned, for those who believe there's an association, and believe me, there's an entire industry of people that's continuing to try to show that there is an association, at best, you can say that this association is complex or perhaps very weak. There's a very thoughtful reflection discussing this article entitled, The Importance of Male Dietary Patterns Extends Beyond IVF, Don't Lose the Forest for the Trees, by Dr. Brems and Coward at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. In this reflection, they point to a growing body of evidence supporting a positive association between healthier diets and semen parameters, but appropriately also note the lack of quality evidence to support the association between such diets and actually outcomes. So a number of weaknesses in the study are appropriately discussed, such as the lack of a full urologic workup for these men, and that these associations, at least in this paper, are only assisted reproduction. It's noted that it's possible that such lifestyle interventions are meant to be long-term, might not have had their effect in time to show an effect on ICSI um, or IVF, and then they actually might have an effect well beyond after a couple goes through their attempt at ART. 
So it's true that the bigger question regarding male dietary correlations and natural fecundity was not assessed in the study. Thus, the comment, don't lose the forest for the trees. But you have to be careful how to interpret negative findings. They suggest, on a high note, that there needs to be continued advocacy for healthy lifestyle choices. And importantly, physicians like us can be in a position that can talk to patients in their healthy lifestyle, should have long-term positive impacts on patients' lifestyle choices. There are certainly long-term benefits of healthy dietary choices beyond semen parameters uh, and beyond the couple's first IVF cycle. And these, of course, should be promoted and have a general effect um, and a long-term effect beyond just their next IVF cycle. So I guess the conclusion is this, of this study is that while adhering to diets that are good for your health don't necessarily improve reproductive outcomes, gosh, if it only if it were that easy. But again, what do we do with this negative study? Is this the end of the beginning or the beginning of a longer discussion? What do we do with this information? Eve, Micah? Yeah, I think we use the information when we counsel the patient who is asking, what else can I do? And I often will see a patient who sits before me and says, I'm doing acupuncture, I'm taking vitamins, I'm eating organic, I've gone vegan, I've gone dairy-free, gluten-free. I think you can use this to say, look, I, I understand you're doing everything possible to help your fertility, but data don't really support that. And I, I think you can continue healthy diet and lifestyle recommendations because that's what's good for your overall health. But I think you can take some of the pressure off that you've been putting on yourself to avoid every French fry that might come before you. Like take a deep breath, know that you're doing the best that you can and eating that one French fry isn't going to cause damage to your whole IVF cycle. I agree with you, Eve, and this fascinates me because it shows our innate bias. You know, I promote a healthy lifestyle because somehow I think that it's true, that it's beneficial, even though I don't have any evidence for it. Yet I don't promote that really excessive supplementation that people come in with taking every vitamin and every supplement because I think there might be harm because it just doesn't work and it's costing too much. So I don't know why I have the same level of evidence for both of those suggestions, but I do. And this is making me think about that. This study is making me thinking about that a little bit. Well, I think part of it is that there's a billion dollar vitamin industry that's out there that preys on vulnerable patients, especially in this arena. And so I, I carry that same bias. And I think that if you do eat a healthy diet, then you will absorb the minerals and the vitamins without needing additional supplementation. So I'm 100% on the same page. I will tell patients to not buy all the supplements and to stop taking supplements, but to continue eating a healthy diet, but not to put too much pressure on themselves about every morsel that comes across their plate. Uh, Eve, I loved your answer to Kurt's question. I'm going to go back and listen to that and make sure that I word it exactly that way to my patients because that was very well said. So Pietro, we've talked four articles about andrology. We're finally going to move on to a topic that nobody is interested in. That topic is PGTA. Finally, the embryo gets a chance on this podcast. It's been sperm, sperm, sperm. This month's issue of FNS also has a wonderful article by my friend, Dr. Julia Kim, and the team at RMA New Jersey, entitled, 
The concordance rates of an initial trophectoderm biopsy with the rest of the embryo using PGT-Seq, a targeted next-generation sequencing PGTA platform. As NGS technology has increased in resolution sensitivity, so too has the information about other chromosomal errors, such as whole chromosome mosaicism and segmental abnormalities. In some studies reporting as many as 25% of embryos demonstrating evidence of mosaicism. Determining the clinical significance of whole chromosome mosaicism and segmental errors is clearly, I think, one of the more pressing challenges we have in how to interpret PGTA results. I like this study because they sought to determine how concordant biopsies were to the initial single trophectoderm biopsy. To do this, they took 300 donated embryos that had been previously biopsied on day five, six, or seven and had undergone NGS either on the next CCS or PGT-SeqA platforms. They individually warmed these blastocysts and then took four subsequent biopsies from different parts of the trophectoderm and subjected those four different biopsy specimens to PGT-seq. So what did they find? Of the euploid embryos, the initial euploid result was reconfirmed in all of the rebiopsy samples 98.5% of the time. Of the aneuploids, the initial aneuploid chromosome was reconfirmed in all rebiopsy samples in 97.1% of embryos. This is good because this is how we all practice. We want to believe that we can trust the euploid call and trust an aneuploid call. This is also good because the high concordance rate makes good biologic sense. We know that the whole chromosome aneuploidy is meiotic in nature and should really be distributed throughout the whole embryo. And thus, PGTA should be able to correctly identify these errors consistently. And I think the study nicely shows that. However, the reproducibility of whole chromosome mosaicism, segmental mosaicism, and segmental aneuploidy are a totally different story, and really where I think this study is so great. So with regard to whole chromosome mosaicism, only two of the 87 chromosomes initially called whole chromosome mosaics were reconfirmed in all four rebiopsy specimens. This yielded a total embryo concordance rate of only 2.29%. This low reproducibility has a nice pathophysiologic explanation as well, because we know that whole chromosome mosaicism is thought to arise from mitotic error, leading to this potentially patchy result in the embryo. With regard to segmental mosaics, a similar result. Only two of the 93 chromosomes initially called segmental mosaics were reconfirmed in all four rebiopsy specimens, yielding a total embryo concordance rate of 2.15% which is very similar to that whole chromosome mosaic biopsy number. Again, suggesting a shared biologic etiology predicated on a meiotic error. Interestingly, however, segmental aneuploid chromosomes were reconfirmed in all four rebiopsy specimens 42.1% of the time. This 42 is significantly higher than those seen in whole chromosome mosaics or the segmental mosaics, but significantly lower than seen in euploid or whole chromosome aneuploid events. The authors argue that we can take comfort in the aneuploid and euploid results on the PGT-seq platform, but they also make the argument that given such low concordance rates on rebiopsy for whole chromosome mosaics and segmental mosaics, these embryos may actually be much more suitable for transfer than how we currently treat them. This study, despite being really elegant and nicely done, is not without its limitations. One limitation that the authors acknowledge is that they never truly examine the inner cell mass. And the authors argue that this would not really have been technically possible to just take inner cell mass cells without a single trophectoderm cell, but more importantly, that it just doesn't reflect clinical practice. You'd never really biopsy the inner cell mass. 
I'm going to open up to discussion because I think there's a lot of interesting data here. Eve, Kurt, Micah, what are your initial thoughts? I mean, as you saw me shaking my head, I think that it, it was such a lost opportunity. They did four separate samples, but it would have been fantastic to at least try to get a fifth sample of the inner cell mass to see, even if the data showed non-concordance, then you can hypothesize that it's contamination. But if we're really trying to get to the crux of the issue on what do these aneuploidies mean, you have to look at the inner cell mass. I really commend the authors. I think it was a, a beautifully done study otherwise. I think it gives us some really useful information, particularly as it relates to aneuploidy and the embryos that we don't transfer. I think the jury is still out what mosaicism really means is, is it a copy number issue? Is it actually an interpretation of that copy number? I think we don't really understand that. But as time goes on, I think that the data are more clear that these embryos that are called mosaic have potential for live birth. But I would have loved to see the data on that inner cell mass, even if the data wasn't confirmatory. I think there's a little bit of clinical utility despite not having the inner cell mass available and that have, not having those results. Eve. Basically, I think the, the fact that they very rarely reconfirmed whole chromosome mosaic or segmental mosaic calls, to me, and I think to the author, suggests that these embryos are likely more suitable for transfer than I think initially thought. And I think just in the last two or three years, with the growing body of data to suggest that these embryos shouldn't be discarded and shouldn't be deprioritized for transfer when no other embryos are available. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think other studies have similarly shown us that, maybe not as elegantly from a scientific standpoint, but I think the data really speaks for itself in terms of what has been published to date on that. So I think that the days of not transferring embryos that have been called mosaic have come to an end. And I think we all need to realize that those embryos probably have a lower likelihood of live birth, but they should not be, they should not be discarded without at least a thoughtful conversation. But I, I do think, you know, I, I often get the question from our patients on how certain are you that my abnormals are truly abnormal. And I think this data, these, and I think that these data, in addition to some of the earlier data that was published by the same group in the non-selection trial really argue very strongly and very elegantly that embryos that are aneuploid do not have a realistic likelihood of live birth. I think the authors would want me to emphasize that these data should not be extrapolated to other PGTA platforms. And I think this group certainly I know feels very strongly that PGTA platforms that are used clinically should undergo non-selection studies and their outcomes should in fact be validated. But I agree with you in the absence of being able to do that at every lab in every center. I think this is really useful data to answer that exact clinical scenario that we often get faced with when patients ask. Kurt, your thoughts? Yeah, I wanted to stay a little high level on this. I am so fascinated and thankful that Fertility and Serility gets an opportunity to publish papers like this. We are seeing a debate unfold in real time in front of us. And that's why one has to keep on top of the medical literature. Um, you know, maybe in 20 years, we're going to have a black and white answer. We're going to go, well, of course. But right now, it's, it's really in front of us and it's, it's evolving. I just, just wonderful. 
Well said. Kurt, we're sticking with you. We've got a, a very nice article on a prediction model for ART outcomes that's been developed by the SARC leadership. So why don't you tell us about that study? Sure. Speaking of evolution, this is a study about predicting cumulative live birth weight following in vitro fertilization. The first author is Dr. McLernan with senior author Bradley Van Voorhees. There's a consortium of institutions that uh, contributed to this paper, including Aberdeen, Emory, Johns Hopkins, Bedford, Texas, Yale, Seattle, and the University of Iowa. So the goal of the study was to develop a prediction model to estimate the individualized chance of cumulative live birth at time points pre-treatment, i.e. before you start your first IVF cycle, and post-treatment, after you've finished your first treatment but before you've started your next cycle. The data was used from the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology Clinical Outcomes Reporting Systems, or SART, as we affectionately know, uh, and it was based on more than 88,000 women who commenced IVF using their own eggs in a SART membership clinic. The subtlety of this model is that pretreatment model estimates cumulative pregnancy rates over three completed cycles, whereas the post-treatment model did so over the second and third IVF cycle. Note, one completed cycle in this definition is the use of the fresh and frozen embryos from one ovarian simulation cycle. So the data was derived from the IVF cycle data from women undergoing their first IVF cycle in 2014 and 15 and took advantage of the relatively new ability to link IVF cycles with the same patient in the database. All right, let's get a little specific. The authors used appropriate and sophisticated statistical techniques to construct some model of prediction of success. Please see the paper for details. I'm not going to go through the sophisticated models. But worth commenting was that some of the relationships, for example, age, BMI, and AMH, were nonlinear, and they use one of my favorite statistical terms called spline estimate line techniques. Interestingly, AMH was not always reported in the database, so the pretreatment model was actually constructed one with AMH levels and one without AMH levels. The post-treatment model was different in that it updated all that clinical information, so your age changed, your BMI potentially changed, and it also included the number of eggs retrieved from your first cycle. So as I mentioned, there's a little more than 88,000 couples who underwent a little bit more than 121,000 completed IVF cycles. And of that whole group, the IVF live birth rate was around 46%. If a couple underwent a second cycle, approximately an additional 29% of the cohort became pregnant. If you underwent a third cycle, an additional 20% became pregnant. In summary, at the end of the day, 56% of the couples had a live birth over the first three completed cycles of IVF during this three-year study. We could probably have a debate on whether those statistics are real or not, because I bet those are not accurately portrayed when we counsel patients, and they're very different from some other studies, but that's what came out of our SART database. So while predicted success in the first cycle, in my mind, wasn't particularly surprising. Age, body mass index, previous live birth, some diagnoses were predictive, like male factor, PCOS, DOR, uh, and there was a very steep increase in success based on your AMH. Factors that were not on the model that were interesting were, for example, tubal factor or endometriosis as a diagnosis. And just to be a little more specific, positive associations were noted in people that had male factor infertility, PCOS, and unexplained infertility, whereas those with uterine factor and DOR had a lower chance of getting pregnant. So in terms of the post-treatment model, there was a decreased chance of success with each subsequent cycle. Again, I don't think that's 
really new information, it's probably intuitive. The post-treatment population is a little bit different from the pre-treatment population because you've taken out a lot of the good prognosis patients. So you have now more people with DOR in this group. It was noted that the number of eggs retrieved was a positive predictor. Most notably, if you got more than 15 eggs, you had a 10% increase in your odds of live birth. So let's back up a little bit from the data for a second. Predicting models is a little bit of an art form. A lot of your ability to predict depends on the quality of the underlying data. And generally speaking, predictive variables are ones that have a very strong association or are very prevalent. But that can be affected by how good is your data and how much is your data missing. For example, some important variables couldn't be included in this model because of the SART data. For example, the duration of infertility, ethnicity, FSH value, smoking status are just simply not research quality data in the SART data set. And therefore, as a general rule, if the data is not really good and there's no systemic bias, those variables predictions are going to go to the null and they're going to drop out as predictors, when in reality, they might actually be very good predictors. Um, that's the same for things like um, smoking and alcohol consumption, because again, they're self-reported and therefore limit their quality. Now, AMH has its own unique problems as a variable. It's not only that it's not always reported, but we've got different platforms and assays, which make it hard to make those variables predictive. And again, it's simply not reported by all clinics and in all patients. But because AMH in itself is probably so predictive, it did end up to be in the model. But I'm just a little suspicious on the actual precision of its predictive ability in this model because of those reasons. So this is not the first predictive model for IVF success rate based on this kind of data. The model is compared to some of the other models that were developed. This model, for example, has an area under the curve C statistics of around 0.69. Other models, about the same, 0.7, 0.71. So overall, this prediction is fairly good from a statistical point of view. But in my mind, it's still a little bit unclear how it's actually going to help the individual patient. In theory, the model can be used to help people make difficult decisions, especially in a low-resource environment. But even a prediction model, such as this one, really are not going to make those choices black and white or definitive. While it's true, a post-treatment model can be used to update the prediction on the first cycle, I think most clinicians do that intuitively anyway. And they don't do it with this kind of sophisticated statistical model. Maybe there's an advantage in having a number or a percentage generated from the model that can be interpreted objectively rather than just a physician saying, you know, your chances are lower based on what we found in the first case. This model can be found at SART.org. Overall, this paper is worth your time to take a look at. The methodology explained in detail and the statistics and the analytic approach are commendable. The problem with a study like this is simply how good does the predictive model have to be in order to be clinically useful. Certainly, extremes in clinical characteristics can be quantitated in this model. For example, if you have a very low AMH or a very high BMI or your extremes in age, this model is going to give you a number that looks horrible as opposed to a clinician just telling me that you know, your characteristics are such that you are of a lower prognosis. But overall, these kind of models simply cannot tell a woman whether they should try or go through IVF or not. It really is a probabilistic approach. It's a probability. And we know, know how difficult it is for educated as well as laypersons to understand the implications of risk and probability. I mean, just look at the lottery. Clearly, those odds don't pertain to me. Uh, I am going to win the lottery. 
Did you buy your ticket today? Look, is that IVF cycle for a poor prognostic patient really just that patient buying a ticket for the lottery? Remember the old joke, God, I've done everything right in my life. Please, why can't I win the lottery? So God goes back to this perfect person and says, do me a favor, buy a ticket. So again, probability is a difficult thing to understand. I commend the authors on this article for making it statistically correct, but I'm still not exactly sure how to use this in my patient population. Eve, Micah, Pietro, what do you think? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, um, you have to remember that statistics don't apply to the individual. Statistics are population level. And I think it's important that patients, before they embark on IVF, have a realistic global idea of how likely something is to work or not work. And I think that this model does an excellent job at that. But at the end of the day, for an individual, it's either zero or 100 IVF will work or IVF will not work. And so how do you take that statistical model? How do you apply that to the individual who's playing the IVF lottery, so to speak? And how do you interpret those data in light of the individual probability? And I think that's where the art of counseling comes in and the art of informed consent comes in is translating those statistics to how do you apply that on an individual level and decision-making as to whether or not somebody should pursue treatment. And I think it, it all comes down to informed consent and good joint decision-making. And I think models like this can be helpful for the, the patient on the extremes that you were talking about, Kurt. So for the patient that really does have a one, two, 3% chance I can tell them that as a clinician based upon everything I know, but just having something that's a validated model that you can put it in and show them from start maybe then helps them realize what, what that chance is and have that sink in a little bit. And many of them will decide that's worth it. They, they want to take the shot. Taking the shot is important, but you will have some patients that I think this helps them make hopefully a more informed decision about their treatment pursuits. It's like that old Beavis and Butthead cartoon where he's told that his chances are one in a million and he comes back and says, so I have a chance. <laughs> I, I was going to use a similar analogy from the OJ trial. Remember the genetics said that the, the chance is uh, one in you know, 100 million according to genetics and the jury said, well, it's not 100%. The bottom line is I, I, mathematically and, and analytically, these are great models. I'm, I'm glad it's published, but it we still haven't solved the problem that our patients don't hear what we're saying in some cases, and we have a very vulnerable population. So I commend the authors for putting this out for everyone to use. Um, it's now up to us to figure out how to use it. And I will say that I think this updated model from SART is a little bit more accurate at the extremes of age in the prediction. The older model, I think, overestimated the success for older patients, and some of it gets to what you're talking about, Kurt, with modeling nonlinear relationships. And so I, I think this at least is a more accurate model now that's available for people publicly, which is nice. All right, Eve, we are sticking with SART papers. So we have another one this time looking at commercial egg banks versus program egg banks. This is a great paper as well. The title is Factors Affecting Live Birth Rates in Donor Oocytes from Commercial Egg Banks versus Program Egg Donors, an analysis of 40,485 cycles from SART registry in 2016 to 2018. 
This paper was written by Robert Stan Williams with David Guzik as the senior author from the University of Florida in Gainesville. The primary objective of this study was to examine the differences in live birth rates with a single embryo transfer using oocytes from program-generated donors or a fresh donor versus commercial egg bank donors and other factors that might affect the live birth rate using donor egg. This was a retrospective cohort study. They examined live birth rate and cumulative live birth rate for single embryo transfer using donor eggs. Data were collected from 2016 to 2018 and included over 40,000 donor egg cycles with 33,000 of these from program-generated cycles and 7,000 from commercial egg bank cycles. They restricted the analysis to those single embryo transfers, and they were able to compare 15,000 single embryo transfers from fresh donors to just about 3,700 from egg bank donors. They also evaluated factors such as number of eggs retrieved and number of eggs retrieved both in the fresh donor cycles and the original cycle from the frozen egg bank donor. They looked at age of the donor, age of the recipient, and then BMI of the recipient. They looked at single cycle, and they also looked at cumulative live birth rate were compared. And I'm going to circle back when we talk about some of the downsides of the study looking at the cumulative live birth rate. They compared up to five single embryo transfer cycles were analyzed per patient, but the individual cycles, particularly in the egg bank cycles, were not necessarily from the same set of donor eggs. And this is the point that I'll circle back to later. Here's what they found. One, there was a steady decline in live birth rate with increases in BMI above normal. So not surprising, but nice to see this. Higher number of oocytes retrieved were associated with a higher live birth rate. And this is contrary to some other studies that have shown a bell-shaped curve for number of retrieved eggs and outcomes. And I know as we talked about in some of the ethics guidelines regarding oocyte donors, we want to be really careful not to stimulate our donors too aggressively for the purposes of safety. But this paper really shows that higher numbers are associated with better outcomes. And again, not surprisingly, blastocyst transfer was better than cleavage stage transfer. But the meat of the data are really when comparing program-generated donors to egg bank donors and live birth rates over first cycle and then cumulative over five cycles. And I will say that the difference in success is statistically significant, but I don't think very clinically meaningful. So program-generated donors had a higher first single embryo transfer live birth rate compared to egg bank, but the difference was very modest at 55.4% versus 55.3% respectively. Cumulative pregnancy rate over five cycles of single embryo transfer shows a slightly but statistically significant advantage of fresh donors versus egg bank donors but again, the difference is incredibly modest at 95.7 versus 94.6%. The point I really want to drive home is that when you purchase a single egg lot, this is usually five to seven eggs with a guarantee of having one blast. I love when a single egg lot gives you two or even three blasts, but realistically, you're not going to get five blasts from a single lot from an egg bank. So the comparison in the study looking at a single FET 
versus cumulative FET isn't exactly real world unless you're doing some sort of guarantee program. When you look at a single frozen embryo transfer, yes, there's a slightly higher likelihood of success with fresh over frozen eggs. And this might be a really fair trade-off considering the logistics, the timing, and the ease of using a commercial egg bank. However, I think real world where that difference really arises is that the cumulative likelihood of success is 73% over two transfers, but it reaches 95% after five transfers. Given that you'll likely get five blasts from a fresh cycle, and you'll probably get one to two blasts from an egg bank cycle, I think what you really have to compare is a 73% cumulative live birth rate versus a 95% cumulative live, weight, live birth rate. And given the fact that they looked at multiple donors in that cumulative prediction, I'm not certain that the cost effectiveness of egg bank really holds up compared to fresh donor, but you may want to select egg bank based on the ease and the availability of it. And so I think that it's reassuring to see that the cumulative probability reaches almost the same point and the single cycle reaches almost the same point, but I can't drive that point home more furiously that it's not really a fair comparison when looking at a single lot of eggs versus a fresh donor. Micah, what do you think? Yeah, I hadn't thought about it in, in that way. And I guess part of what you're talking about makes the assumption that if you're using a fresh donor, one patient is one recipient is getting all of those eggs as opposed to them being split between two or three patients, in which case you might get to a similar number of eggs as you would to a commercial. Right. I think I that's a I think that's a fair point. And I don't think that they included shared donor cycles in this database. And so I think if you're looking at it quite simply as a fresh donor with 100% of those eggs allocated to the recipient couple versus a single lot of egg bank eggs, then I think you can realistically, you have to look at that graph and you have to say, what is the success after one transfer? What is the success after two transfers? And what is the success after three transfers? Unless you're doing some sort of a guarantee program where you get up to five or up to six transfers, at which point when you do a guarantee program, then it's a fair comparison with that cumulative likelihood of success. But the cost of the guarantee program may be twice the cost or three times the cost if you're in a mandated state of a fresh donor. And so you're probably spending more to get the same cumulative likelihood of success but it's a trade-off with, with the ease of administration of donor eggs, with the time that it takes, especially during COVID. I take these data away and say, look, they're more or less similar. So pick whatever works for you. But again, understand the limitations of what you're getting and what you might not be getting. And you could also take the other side of that argument to say that while we usually get more than five blasts from a fresh donor, there's always that like horrible donor cycle that goes wrong where you don't get as many blasts as you're hoping for. Yeah, that was the same thing I took home, Eve, was overall reassuring between the, the two arms. So I found it interesting that the reflections um, 
was very strongly uh, the opposite in favor of um, fresh program cycles as opposed to the commercial egg bank. So obviously a lot of different opinions on this, but I found this data also to be uh, reassuring that they're relatively similar in their outcomes. Yeah, I also read the reflection with the idea that they were trying to say, you know, some people will claim similarity is a benefit to egg bank. And that's a commercial success. And they were trying very hard to say, look, it really depends on your situation. And this paper shouldn't be used to, to tout the success of commercial banking. Yeah, I think egg bank is great for patients who want one child, patients who want one more child. Um, I think for the couple who is hoping to have two or more children, I tend to counsel those couples either to purchase more than one lot of eggs from the egg bank or to use a program generated or fresh donor where you'll get more eggs from that patient. And so I think it's, again, it's, it's good to have the data. I also think that our role as clinicians is to tailor those data to the individual and their situation. But I, I was surprised at the reflections and that they made such a difference over a distinction that I think is not really clinically relevant. We have one more study we're going to talk about in the ART section. This is another study from the RMA New Jersey group. The first author is Amber Klimzak and senior authors Emery Selly and Richard Scott. It's titled B-cell lymphoma 6 expression is associated with live birth in normal responder in vitro population, or is it associated? Uh, so BCL6 is a proto-oncogene that suppresses tumor suppressor protein 53, uh, leading to inhibition of apoptosis. So it's a essentially pro-oncogenic gene. And it has been associated when it's elevated in the endometrium, its expression is elevated in the endometrium with endometriosis. And it's been suggested to play a role in progesterone resistance and implantation failure, although the mechanisms of that have not been well studied or proven. So these authors uh, chose to study this in a, a broader population, not an endometriosis population or a failed implantation population, but in a normal responder, good prognosis patient population. They performed a case control study, and these were patients from a different study that had had endometrial biopsies on day eight after trigger that were frozen. And they then thawed them and did BCL6 immunohistochemistry and then that was followed by PGA, PGTA euploid FET transfers. So it was a case controlled study. So they had the patients that had a live birth and compared them to those that did not have a live birth and then looked back to see what their BCL6 expression was. And overall, they found out that 30% of patients had elevated BCL6 expression in the group that did not have a live birth and 30% had elevated expression in the birth that did have a live birth. So in other words, it was not different between the two arms. So they concluded that BCL-6 is not a marker of implantation in good prognosis patients. The reflection was written by Alyssa Kostarakis and Jenny Ryan at the University of Washington, and they discussed the evidence behind BCL-6 expression and endometriosis and implantation failure, and they take a very strong view with this data. They say that these data call into question the role of BCL-6 ex expression as a predictor of outcomes in general ART, 
but even perhaps in any population, given that it was equally prevalent in those that had a, a baby and those that did not. So they, they said that this really calls into question, this is a marker of implantation at all. So I think this is good evidence from uh, the RMA team showing that at least in the good prognosis patients, there doesn't seem to be a role for measuring BCL6 expression. And I think this gets back to what Kurt was talking about at the start of the podcast, where we tend to wait for evidence that something doesn't work before we start to pull back a test uh, that's being broadly clinically utilized and how quickly we'll take very preliminary evidence and very specific patient populations, and all of a sudden start applying it to our broader general IVF uh, patients. So I appreciated this study, even though it was a null study, I think it's helpful data. So that leads us to our last study, which is a survey of the SREI membership. And I'm excited for this discussion because the last time this survey was done, our very own Kurt Barnhart was the author of that paper and was the president of SREI. When this survey was done, our very own Eve Feinberg uh, was the president of SREI. So Eve, tell us about this paper and let's talk about it. This paper is called Changing Gender Gap in Practice Patterns in Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility Subspecialists in the U.S., and this was an SREI report. So, Mike, as you said, this is an update from a prior study that Kurt conducted in 2014, and it's an SREI-sponsored survey study of practicing REIs across the U.S., looking at total compensation and practice patterns. There were 37 questions that asked about salary, work hours, and job satisfaction. And I, I have to say, I've spent a lot of time just digesting the data and really processing and thinking about it. The survey was sent to 1,000 SREI members with 370 respondents. So I would have loved to see more of a response rate, but not terrible. And the main findings were that female respondents were more common than males among REIs less than 50, but the majority of respondents over age 51 were male. 43% of respondents were at an academic institution, 40% were in private practice, and the remainder were corporate, solo, or hospital-owned practices. 27% left academics for private practice and 8% left private practice for an academic practice. Annual compensation ranged from $100,000 to $5 million. Mean annual compensation was $519,000 and the median was $400,000, with the mean being skewed by 6% of all respondents reporting an income of greater than $1 million. From highest to lowest salary, we had private group practice, followed by conglomerate or corporate practice, followed by solo practice, hospital practice, and then academic practice. And it was interesting, I thought, to see that the first five years of practice, annual compensation was similar across the board, where the differences started to come in were really in years five through nine, where REIs in private practice earned 39% more than those in academic practice. And the real difference came in after 10 years, REIs working in private settings earned more than twice as much as those in academic settings. And the mean salary in private practice was 820,000 versus 391,000 in academic practice. The hours worked per week were not associated with annual compensation. And I think that the interesting point was women made less money than men, 
but, and this is a big but, this was due to overrepresentation in academic practices. And when you stratified the data and you looked at women in academic medicine versus men in academic medicine or women in private practice versus men in private practice, there were no gender differences in pay. So I thought that was a good reassuring nugget from this study. 91% of respondents said that they would still choose REI if they could redo their careers. And I think that's a huge um, positive finding of this study and one that's really reassuring. And REI morale scores increased significantly with increasing compensation and was unrelated to years in practice. Morale was highest in REIs in private practice and REIs working in academic practice sadly had the lowest morale. Morale was related to the number of hours worked per week with 50 hours being a clear demarcation. Those who worked more than 50 hours had lower morale than those who worked fewer. And females had lower morale than male counterparts. But again, I think that has to do with that academic distinction. Um, what we can say from this overall is that these types of inquiry are good and can help bring transparency in job negotiations. I do, however, have a few concerns regarding salary and satisfaction. And I think to my earlier point, 37% response for survey is good, but I worry a lot about selection bias. Are those who are at the opposite ends of the happiness spectrum more likely to respond kind of like patient satisfaction scores? And no doubt there's income disparity in different practice settings. However, as someone who's been on both sides of the private and academic equation, I think there's also a large work disparity with many in a private setting having more clinical days than those in academics. And 50 hours of work, 50 hours of a work week in an academic setting is not 50 hours face-to-face -face with patients in billable time. And again, my personal experience having worked in both settings, and again, my personal experience can't be generalized to all private practices or all academic settings, but the work week and the clinical volume between academics and private practice looks really different. While teaching a med school class is super fun and really satisfying, it just doesn't bring in the same revenue as patient care. The more face-to-face -face patient care you do, the more revenue you generate. And what I have visualized from my own experiences is that the lower pay in academics really comes from a lower volume of clinical care. I was personally sad to see that the most unhappy group were women in academic practice. And I, I don't experience that personally, but I can't help but wonder how much is due to lack of control over schedule and longer work hours due to administrative tasks and less efficiency as opposed to salary alone. And so again, I think I've spent a lot of time thinking about these data and I'm really reassured to see that the gender gap is not a true gender gap, that it really has more to do with environment than, than pay differential but I'm sad to see that the most unhappy group were women in academic medicine, and I would love to change that. Kurt, what stood out to you as the author of the paper seven years ago between then and now? Well, I, I think I need to give the commercial message that Eve did that, you know, a survey like this is really good to kind of compare trends. But, you know, it's a really small 
amount of people responded to this. So it's really hard to be specific on this or to use, as I said before, you just kind of let the data flow over you in terms of the trends. You, you really can't you know, point to specifics on this. I think my non-scientific take on it in the difference between the, the, the two surveys is that I, I think it boils down to control. When I did the survey, there were some distinct differences. And when I showed that the pay scale was different for women, the answer that I got was, of course, they work fewer hours. And I think that's what's showing up in the later survey is that without control of your schedule, you're, you're going to be dissatisfied. And someone that's been an academic all my life, academics are now pushing for productivity with patient care, and that might not be what you signed up for. So listen, I'm an optimist by heart. I think there's great satisfaction in this field. I would definitely do it again. I think we have an outstanding obligation to have a wonderful lifestyle, have great patient impact, and, and it's a great field. But you just got to be careful on what your job is and have control of it. I think the one silver lining of the COVID-19 pandemic, or one of the silver linings of the COVID-19 pandemic as it relates to control is that with increasing telehealth, I think there's more flexibility in office scheduling. And whereas before, when I wanted to cancel a clinic or quote, bump a clinic, it was by committee and five different people had to be involved in order to move my schedule around. And it was really hard to change. Whereas now with telehealth, if I want to switch my Monday clinic to a Tuesday, no big deal. I don't have to fight for office space. It's not by committee. There's a lot more flexibility and a lot more control over that schedule. So I'm hoping that some of the some of the lack of control may be changing with an increase in telehealth and with some of the lessons that we've learned from the COVID-19 pandemic. But I agree, 37% is really low. I worry about the non-respondents and what that might show. But I, I really think that it's the patient care that drives the compensation and the differences in compensation are driven by volume. And I wish that the academic pursuits had a higher price tag associated with them. But I think that it's, you know, at a certain point, you realize it's not just the money, but it's really the satisfaction and the altruism and the fun that comes from being in that academic setting that makes me really love what I do. Yeah, but let's end on optimistic, Eve, because we both agree with these surveys. This is a really optimistic, high satisfaction field. I, I wish, well, let me put it differently. I've explained this to some of my friends who are not in REI, and they can't believe the amount of job satisfaction coupled with the flexibility, coupled with the compensation that this profession has compared to many other professions that you can name anyone. So I want to compliment everybody for a great career choice. I say that to our fellows every time <laughs> they come in. And compliment, again, the people that filled out the survey. And please do it again in a couple of years because we have a unique opportunity to really show what a wonderful field this is. I think it's a, I say this all the time as well. I think it is a privilege to do what we do to have found a field that is so satisfying intellectually, so satisfying on a personal level. And I just really love all of the different components of what we get to do on a daily basis and couldn't be happier in what we have the privilege to do. Atru is a graduating fellow. What are your thoughts? I wanted to put a plug for the fellows who are listening to this podcast. If you're finding yourself at the beginning of the, what do I do after fellowship is done stage of fellowship? I think this is a great place to start. You can get the most current information about 
how people are compensated, how happy they are, and how they spend their time during the work week, and hopefully really help inform your decision of what kind of future you want for yourself beyond training. And I want to add one more piece of advice. I, I said this at the fellows retreat just a few months ago, that even the quote unquote failures in their first job, all land on their feet and all have fantastic jobs and are still a member of one of the most optimistic privileged fields that, that we can be part of. So look at the half full glass. Don't look at the half empty. Great note to end on. So as always, we only covered some of the articles in this month's journal. There's many others. We encourage you to open your virtual edition of the journal and read every article. There are five video articles in February, so take a look at those as well. We have two upcoming journal clubs in February, one that is looking at the practice committee document on obesity and reproduction, and another that is being run by our European colleagues and Dom de Ziegler that will be looking at high-performing SART clinics. What do they do that make them have good outcomes? And I finally want to give a listener shout out this month to Max Azadi, who always listens to our podcast and makes very critical and insightful comments on Twitter to engage us. So Max, keep it up and we appreciate you listening and we'll talk to you all soon again in March. Have a great February. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.